The reading of, strict, of the scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks, Hannah, for reading the word of God today. Um, <clears throat> we're continuing in this series here about what it means to be a disciple. If you remember, we started out by looking at what the church is supposed to do. And we said there are three things that the church, at least from Matthew 28, that we saw the church ought to be responsible for. And that was teaching the word of God, right? Uh, baptizing, uh, sacraments. And then it says, disciple all the nations. So discipling. And we were trying to explain what that means. And basically what we're saying is this, that when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about someone who is following Jesus. If you look in the Bible, everywhere in the scripture, there is not one place that says make converts, get people to confess Christ. That's just the beginning. But throughout the scriptures and throughout the New Testament, over and over, we're told what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. And when I talk about discipleship, or when we talk about what it means to be a disciple, immediately you start thinking personally. You start thinking individually. What am I doing? How do I individually follow Jesus Christ? And I think, Pastor James, maybe last week, one of those things is that you obey in your life. That's one of the ways you know. But oftentimes, as individuals, we think about, well, this is what a Christian is supposed to do as they follow Jesus, and this is how we become better disciples. We, we do QT, quiet times, uh, maybe regularly. Maybe we should um, read the Bible or even study it on our own. Um, we, we have our own prayer time. These are one of the things we do if we want to grow as a disciple to follow Jesus. And it's also personal obedience and faithfulness, okay? And this is how normally most people think about uh, when we think about discipling or following Jesus in our personal life. But I want to remind you of this. One of the marks of the church is to make disciples of all nations. And the idea of church is not individualistic, is it? The idea of church is not just personal. It's, it's corporate. Uh, it's communal. So how does being a disciple, how does making disciples, how does following Jesus happen in a corporate setting, in a communal setting? To put it another way, what does my following Jesus have to do with others who are following Jesus? How does my discipleship affect, impact, influence other people's discipleship? And there's something I think here, very basic, that we all need to understand, whether we acknowledge it or not, and that is this. You and I, all of us, in one way or another, have influence. We all have spheres of influence in our lives, relationships and people that we interact with, transact with, live with, that we influence, that we affect. 
And we are also influenced and affected by those same relationships, whether intentionally or unintentionally, whether in casual settings over a beer or, or dinner, or even in more formal settings. In all our relationships, in all our interactions, we influence and are influenced. We affect and are affected by those around us in minor ways and subtle ways, but also in major ways and maybe life-changing ways. And think about this, okay? With regards to our faith, with regards to our discipleship, think about this. We can either encourage others to grow in faith or we discourage. We either get people to move closer to Jesus or we actually move them further away from Jesus. And more and more as I think about this, as I think about my influences and our influences upon one another, I don't think there's any middle ground. I don't think there's any neutrality here. You are, in all your instances, even the most mundane and the most subtle ones, you are either encouraging them to Jesus or you are discouraging them from Jesus, right? Think about this with people at work, how you act, how you speak, how you interact with them, with people in your school, what you say, what you do, what you, what you, you know, enjoy with them, people in your family, your spouse, your husband, your wife, your children, in all your interactions, as casual as they might feel, with whoever you are, you influence, and you are influenced. Overtly, that practically means some of you might actually share your faith. But subtly, an act, a word of kindness, a response that's patient and gracious and full of gratitude, a feeling of positivity or negativity. If this is true, then discipleship, and following Jesus is, is not just an individualistic, private activity. It's also a communal and group activity. In fact, it's inevitable and indispensable to you following Jesus, the group aspect. Okay? This is something as I, I look into, and as we look into the next few weeks, uh, I think this is one of the areas that Sojourner needs to do better at. Okay? This is where we need to really think about who, who we interact with, how we do things, how we fellowship, how we commune, how we worship. This is, this is so important, and I think this is, I think, where one of the areas where I think we need to know. And, and initially, I wanted to actually talk about Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. That, that's really the hard stuff, the stuff that, 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 you know, is difficult. But as I study the whole chapter, this is where we're going. We're going to look at the whole chapter. We, we need to understand a few things before we get to verses 15 and 20, through 20, Okay. Because here's the thing, as we look at Matthew chapter 18, here is Jesus' attempt to get two very important issues in the Christian life. Here's what chapter 18 is all about, okay? Just in case you fall asleep. First, what is the character of a person who is part of what he calls the kingdom of God? That's the first point he wants to say. The second point in all this chapter, throughout this chapter, the second point, how does a person who is part of the kingdom of God, relate to others who are also part of the kingdom of God? These two questions are going to be run again and again throughout Matthew 18, and especially when we get to verses 15 to 20. All right? But we need to slowly get there so you understand what the climax of verse 18 is going to be about. So that's the questions that he's asking. What is the character of a person who belongs to the kingdom of God? And how does that person relate to others who are part of the kingdom of God? Okay? 
three points I've got in this passage from verses 1 to 6, because that's what was just read. The character of the kingdom, first of all. The way we get the kingdom, second point. And the way we get the kingdom is directly connected to the way we live with others in the kingdom. Third point. What is the character of the kingdom? What is the way we get into the kingdom? And thirdly, that the way we get into the kingdom is somehow connected with the way we live with others in the kingdom. Really important, okay? But let's follow this carefully. First point, what is the character of God's kingdom? Now, when I say kingdom, if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's, it's an ancient Near East term. Everything was about kingdoms and so forth. But basically, you could say church, okay? What is the kingdom of heaven on earth? It's the local church. Or it's the universal church. Whatever you want to say. It's God's people. That's how you can say kingdom. So that's what we mean. But what is the character? One of the chief characteristics of God's kingdom. And in verses 1 and 2, we'll look at the first two verses. What we hear about is that there are these disciples of Jesus. The ones who have been following Jesus all this time. And there's a dispute among them. All right? In fact, when you read Mark, you read that, uh, you know, they were just fighting among themselves and they didn't want Jesus to hear. But Jesus overhears their conversation and he asked them, what are you guys talking about? And they're asking or they're disputing among themselves, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Who is the best? And so they asked Jesus, Jesus, when we get to heaven, because we all want to be there, um, who is the best? Apart from you and apart from God the Father and the Holy Spirit, who's going to be closest to you? Who, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? That's what they're arguing about. And, and you have to ask, why? Why are they arguing about this? And it could possibly be. I think there was some jealousy going on in this circle of disciples. Because from Matthew 15, 14, 15, all the way to 17, this one disciple, Peter, always gets the attention. Peter is the guy that everyone goes to. Uh, to talk or to speak on behalf of all the disciples. Even when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? It's Peter that responds for everybody else. Peter was recognized as the leader among these disciples. And so here they are arguing about who's the greatest. Could it be that there were people in that group that were jealous of Peter? Right? Could it be that they, they, they wanted to discuss among themselves who really is the greatest? Who really is the best? The best follower. And I want you to think about this. Jesus had already told them a few chapters ago that he's going to die, right? And when they heard that, they despaired. They were sad. They were absolutely despairing of what Jesus said to them. And then he tells them again after that first time, a second time, in Matthew 17, that he's going to die. But the second time, the very first conversation they have after Jesus reminds them of this is Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 2. He announces that he's going to die again. The first time the conversation is reported, the disciples are sad. But the second time he tells them, that I'm going to die, I'm going to, I'm going to go away, they're arguing about who the greatest is. The first time they were despairing, now they're disputing. The first time they were sad when they heard about his death, but now they're preoccupied with assessing their important roles in the kingdom. 
And so already there's something wrong with these group of guys. Their attitude, their heart was a problem, and it's the same problem for us. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you today, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest boxer in our country? I'm the greatest of all time. We would say Muhammad Ali, maybe. The greatest basketball, maybe Michael Jordan. Uh, U.S. News and World Report said Roger Federer is the greatest athlete. Athlete, not just tennis player, athlete. Who is the best scientist? Who's the greatest scientist? Maybe Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking. Who is the greatest musician in this country throughout history? In Rolling Stone magazine, you know what they said? Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. We love to talk about who the best is. We love to talk about who the greatest is. Just like the disciples, we want to ask the question, who is the best? It's born into us. It revolves all around us. Even at an early age, those of you who are in school, growing up in school, who is the most popular one, right? Who is the most likable one? Who is the toughest one? Who is the coolest one, the most athletic, the smartest one? Who is number one in your ranking, in your school ranking? We love to talk about who is most likely to succeed. Who's the best? By the way, in high school, not to brag, but I was voted most likely to succeed. And then I became a pastor. Uh, it was quite a disappointment to my parents. But anyways, we all want at least to be good, if not great, at what we do. Maybe at work, maybe at home, maybe with friends, maybe even at church. And we ask, who is the greatest? So when the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, who is the greatest, who's the best in your kingdom? Jesus responds to this question. He brings this child, okay? The child is probably closer to an infant age, sits him on his knee, and he looks directly at the disciples, looks them in the eye, and he says, this is greatness. This is greatness. And I think they were shocked. Because in their culture, in their time, the most powerless members of society were those kind of children, little children. In the most of ancient societies, age increased your social status. The older you got, the more you went up in status in society and authority. In Jewish culture, children were loved. They weren't hated. But the point is, they've got no status, they've got no privilege and power apart from what they receive from their parents as total dependence. The status of a child is like at the bottom of the pecking order, subject to grown-up authority, dependent and powerless. And Jesus tells them, as they're talking about who's the best in the kingdom, he sits this child in front of them, and he says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. Greatness in the kingdom of God, in God's eyes, is a matter of humility. Not power or position or wisdom. To become humble means, for Jesus, is to be someone who is without status without achievement, and in that sense, in their culture, like that little child. And he's telling them, this is to be great in my kingdom. 
Humility is the character of God's kingdom. Humility. And here in our passage, Jesus is questioning the disciples' idea of what they think is great. And he's questioning ours as well. Everywhere else in our world, it says, if you want to be great, if you want to be the best, this is what you've got to do. This is where you need to be. This is who you've got to know. This is what you've got to accomplish. If you want to be respected, if you want to be loved, if you even just want to be accepted, that's all on you. You need to do this. You need to be like this. You need to act like this, think like this, say like this. But Christianity and the gospel is very the opposite. How do I know this? Because if that's how greatness is achieved, if that's how God's kingdom worked, how can an insignificant, helpless little child be great? They can't do anything. They can't earn anything for themselves. They're not able to accomplish or achieve anything on their own. They're helpless. They're completely dependent. And yet God says they've got status. They've got position. They're the ones that are great in my kingdom. And if you want to be great, you've got to be like them. Jesus challenges them, and he's challenging us about ideas of greatness. And he's saying, your idea is all wrong about what is great. And I think that forces us to ask a few questions about what we think. What are your aspirations right now? What do you think is being great in your life? What for you would you say is success? Is it more cars? Is it better job, bigger income? Is it more prestige or wealth or reputation? Is it simply just more clothes, more, more, more stuff? What, what is? How do you define success today, right? What is greatness to you? Is it influence? Is it having significance? Is it, is it your reputation? Is that greatness for you? And I think what we learn here in this passage of Matthew 18 is that the nature of greatness in God's world is utterly different from the nature or idea of greatness in our world. It's completely flipped. Humility is the character of the kingdom. I want to thank the church, especially particular members of the church who find it their job to keep me humble. Because that's great. I'm just kidding, but you know what I'm talking about. So that's the first point. The character of the kingdom is humility. Now, here's the second point. How do we get there? How do we get the kingdom of God? If the character of the kingdom of God is humility, then the way we get the kingdom, the way we get Jesus, is the same. It's humility. Jesus says here in, in this verse, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't get it unless you become like this. Matthew 19, a chapter later, Jesus takes another child and he says, The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You want to be a part of God's kingdom. If you want to be a part of God's world, if you want his kingdom is life if you want to be great in God's kingdom then you have to be like these children it's humility be humble that's what he's saying humility isn't just one of the characteristics of God's kingdom humility is also the way to get there to be part of it requires humility here's what I mean 
in the world, it's always going to be the strongest. It's, it's the fastest, the smartest, the prettiest. It's the self-sufficient, the most independent. They're the ones that are in. But in God's world, it's the humble. It's people like those children who seem insignificant and weak and unable, who depend on others and not on themselves, who depend on God and his grace and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what, that, what he provides for them that can't provide for themselves, they're the ones that are in. I, and I know you know this, but think about this, okay? Why is it that for some people, being a Christian or accepting Jesus uh, or understanding the gospel is hard? It's difficult. It's offensive. Why is it that we call it scandalon in grace? It's a stumbling block. Why is the gospel a stumbling block for some people? Why is it hard for some people to come to Jesus Christ? And here's the answer, I think. It's not the fact that you have a guy here who's willing to accept all kinds of sinners. Sometimes we look at those people and say, I can't believe that guy is in church. I know what he does in his life. I can't believe God would like him, Right? And so I can't be a Christian. No, that sometimes, but most of the times, most people like that idea. The fact that there's someone out there who's going to accept you no matter what you do. That's grace, and we love it. But then why is it some people, they have a hard time with this? Okay, and here's what I think it is. It isn't the fact that God accepts all sinners and he's willing to take anyone. It's the fact that he won't accept you just because you think you're pretty good. What stumbles people is not the fact that God will accept people even though they're bad. What stumbles people a lot of times is that he won't accept you because you think you're pretty good. That you've done a lot of good things. That you've given so much to people and to life. That you've accomplished so many good altruistic acts. That you've given and, and spent so much of your life devoted to, to charity or, or to, to, to helping others and so many good things in the world. And the stumbling block is that just because you've done so much good doesn't mean that therefore you, are, you should be accepted by God. And you're thinking, and many of us think, that well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person sitting next to me. I'm not as bad as that person in, in, sitting in the front. So at least I deserve some credit, some recognition. But as good as you think you are, as much good as you think you've done, it doesn't mean a thing before a holy God. It doesn't contribute a single thing, not one iota to God in his acceptance of you. Think about this. We think like this all the time. Oh, I know I'm accepted by grace. I know I'm a sinner and I don't deserve nothing, but God accepted me. But we judge everyone around us all the time. Like, I would never do that. I would never say that. I can't believe he would say that. I can't believe she would do that like that. Whenever you say that, you're probably right. But you're also self-righteous. It's humbling to be told. You've got a great track record, but you're not in. John Gerstner, 
Christian apologist said this, quote, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sin, it's your damnable good works, end quote. And what he's saying is this, for many of us, it's not your bad stuff that gets in the way of you and God. It's your good stuff. It's your own righteousness that gets in the way. And it requires humility. Humility is the character of the kingdom, but it's also connected with the way you get the kingdom. Because when we become Christians, we have to face up to the fact that we absolutely don't deserve anything from him, that we've got nothing really to offer, nothing to contribute, everything to receive, that we come to God and we sing like the hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That takes humility. Okay? Character of the kingdom is humility. The way to get the kingdom is with that character, humility. And the third point here is this. The way we get the kingdom is now directly connected to the way we live with others in the kingdom and here on earth. In other words, if humility is the way I get the kingdom... That ought to affect, and here's the real point of this passage, that ought to affect the way I interact, the way I live in this world, especially with others who are in the same kingdom. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. He says, quote, I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realize two things. I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself. End quote. That was his motto on how he should live in this world. No confidence in myself, absolute confidence in God. This is hard because this is not what the world does. How many of you have heard this and even said this to yourself or to your children? Believe in yourself and you can do anything. Believe in yourself, you can do anything. And that world, our world, bombards us with that kind of thinking. And I don't think that's wrong all the time. I think there's a place to say that. But, but listen to the phrase again and what the Bible says. The world says, believe in yourself and you can do anything. But Paul says in Philippians 4, I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Do you understand that those two views are at the opposite ends of the poles? They're utterly different. I can do everything. And then I can do everything through him who strengthens me. It's different. So when we say you live by humility, we're not saying you have a permanent inferiority complex. Okay? When, when you say be humble, you're not, you're not that guy hanging his head and saying, oh, I suck, I stink, I stink. And, you know, it, it, it's not a self-esteem issue. Humility does not mean that you're that person uh, with the lowest head and walking around with a dark cloud over your head. What does it mean to live with humility right now? Sinclair Ferguson expands this and he says this, quote, humility is not simply feeling small and useless, like an inferiority complex. Humility is sensing how great and glorious God is 
and then seeing myself in that light. One Christian said this, quote, Great men never know that they're great. But small men never know that they are small. Great men are given to doing whatever God has called them to do. They never stop to think about their personal greatness. They're not thinking about themselves. They're self-forgetful. And C.S. Lewis says the same thing. He says this, quote, Christian humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Why? Because humility, you're always thinking about others. You're always thinking about others. And when you read verse 5 and 6, right after Jesus tries to teach them about the character of the kingdom and how to get the kingdom, like this little child, what's the very next thing he talks about in verse 5 and 6? He says this, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe me to sin, it'd be better for him to hang a great millstone around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. He says, this is the character of the kingdom. It's humility. This is how you got the kingdom. It's humility. And if you've got humility, what are you doing? You're thinking about others. You receive someone like that. You receive me. You cause one of them to stumble, to sin, to be hurt. You hurt and sin against me. There's a concern for others. And here in that part, those two verses, you know, Jesus is looking out for his people, but his prime message here is for his disciples. That humility, the character of the, the kingdom, humility, the way to get the kingdom is also how you relate to others in the kingdom, in the church. And the question I think he's asking these disciples is this. If you're following me, and if you're humble enough, has your humbleness, has your humility led you to think about others? For others. To order and make choices for the sake of others. And so we conclude this passage with basically two points. If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be humble. But the second, if you're going to be my disciple, because you're humble, you're going to care about your fellow disciples more than you care about yourself. Even when they hurt you. Even when they are weak. Even when they are straying. You care about them. You see with this? This is a rebuke to his disciples. Because what are they doing in the beginning of this chapter? They're squabbling amongst themselves who is the greatest. They're fighting about their own reputation. They're concerned about their position. And it tells you that they haven't learned humility. And secondly, that they care more about themselves than the other. And so from Jesus' point of view, their view of greatness is so self-centered, so selfish, and so fundamentally on the wrong track, it was questionable whether they were really following him. Whether they really understood the kingdom that he proclaimed, in particular, that its basis lay in God's free grace 
and it ought to produce humility. If there's any word that the world today need to hear in a culture today that says success and greatness is found when you trample on others and you follow your selfish ambition, gathering everything that you can at the cost of everybody else, this is what Jesus says that is countercultural. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. How do I get there? How do I find this kind of humility? Again, C.S. Lewis says, quote, If anyone would wish to acquire humility, I can tell him the first step. To recognize that he is proud. That's where it starts. Recognize you are proud. End quote. How do you become a child? Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children. How do you become a child? You're an adult. How do you become a child? Listen carefully, and I'm going to end with this. If the character of the kingdom is humility, it's because the king of the kingdom was humble. He became like one of us, and he came not to be served, but to serve others. If the way to get the kingdom is through humility, it's because the king of the kingdom was humbled all the way to a cross to die like a thief. Take your judgment so that he could give you this kingdom and every blessing it has. If you relate to brothers and sisters in the kingdom, with humility, it's because the king of that kingdom, again and again and again, with all humility, has been patient, forbearing with you, and faithful to you, even though many times you and I have been faithless. We become children of God. We become God's kingdom when we are humbled by its king, by his love, when we are humbled by his mercy and grace and we surrender ourselves before him with grateful and empty hands, we reach out and we confess, I trust you, help me to follow you because I depend on you. You are a child of God. Consider this in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I confess, Lord. What seems so simple to know and understand, things like humility and humbleness is so difficult to actually practice. This is an issue not just for uh, young people, it's, it's also an issue for old people. It, it's not just an issue for those who are young in faith, it's also an issue for those who are older in faith. It's so 
It seems so obvious and basic and yet so difficult to manage and understand. We understand with our heads, but many times our hearts are full of the very opposite. And it shows in the way we interact with those around us, especially even in the church. It's very difficult, Lord, uh, to do what you've done for us before others. To display that kind of humility. A humility that is less concerned with ourselves, but more concerned with others. A humility, Lord, that doesn't look at what we are able to do or have done, but, but look at what could be done for others. Hey, Lord, this, this is, doesn't always happen. Uh, it, we, we confess that it, it's something that is, seems obvious, but Lord, we, we struggle with that. And I, I certainly do myself. And, and so, Lord, we pray that you remind us again uh, the nature of your kingdom, the nature of you. And we pray for that kind of humility to be displayed in our lives if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, this needs to work and happen by your grace and strength. And you continue to mold us into that image. We are, if we're not humble, Lord, we will be humbled. And we pray that you would do that as hard as it might be so that we might come out the other end and knowing you even more. So help us to be faithful to you in all things and trust in your grace for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's, uh, let's all rise if we can.